Welcome back to the Foreign Policy Provcast. My name is Mark Melton. I'm the managing editor for Providence. And today I am speaking with Robert Nicholson, who is the president of the Philos Project based in New York. And first off, Robert, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Mark. Good to be here. So starting on September 27th, the war between Azerbaijan and the Republic of Artsakh resumed. Uh, this area is known as uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, and Artsakh is a region within Azerbaijan that is predominantly Armenian, and since 1994 has been controlled by the Armenians who are predominantly Christian. Before then, the Soviet Union controlled this area. The war ended recently on November 10 with the Armenians and Artsakh losing most of its territory, and this weekend we saw videos of Armenians torching their homes before their region were transferred to Azeri control, and most territory will be transferred in the next couple of weeks. So, Robert, why did this war happen? Well, that's a great question, Mark, and it depends on who you ask as far as what answer you'll get. The details are are still quite fuzzy, actually, and I've heard differing reports from people who are invested or, or one or the other side. What we do know is that the latest round of fighting started in September after some clashes or skirmishes, they're described in different ways, that happened over the summer. And although I am under the impression that the uh, Azerbaijan uh, military was the first to initiate the attacks, it's not entirely clear, and I, I can't prove it. What I do know is that the fighting began uh, in earnest when the Azeris uh, began invaded and started taking ground in this Republic of Artsakh or Nagorno-Karabakh, as it's sometimes called. And the, the war proceeded uh, from there until just last week. But it's also important to note, and I don't know how much we'll get into this, but you know, looking at this conflict as one that began in September or even this year is really to to understand the situation as seen through a straw. This is a, a much larger conflict that's been going on for, for years, at the very least since the 90s, and, and arguably long before that, as the Armenians have tried to maintain a foothold in their in their homeland, their ancient homeland, they've they've been living in eastern Anatolia for, you know, since before Jesus was born, and uh, slowly, slowly over time, they have been subject to these sorts of invasions, these acts of aggression, and little by little, they've they've lost land as they have in this latest conflict. Yes, it's been a pretty long conflict, and while I was researching into who controlled the territory in the region and when, it gets pretty complicated. And of course, for those listeners who don't already know, Armenia is known as being the first Christian nation because the state established Christianity as the state religion in AD 301. But Robert, what has Turkey's role been in this conflict? Well, one thing that's important to know, and I'm, I'm sure you know, but I'll say it anyway in case there are people out there who don't, is that uh, Turkey and Azerbaijan, both of which are located on either side of the Republic of Armenia and, and this Republic of Artsakh, are Turkic states. Ethnically, they are, they are the same. They identify as Turks. Their languages, although sl somewhat different, are, are Turkish uh, languages. And um, although they are different in terms of their religious practices, one being Sunni Muslim, Turkey, and the other being 
Shia, Muslim, uh, Azerbaijan, they very much see themselves as, as brother states. They sometimes call themselves uh, two states, one nation. And throughout the years, throughout the decades, Turkey has been very supportive of Azerbaijan, both during Soviet times and, and all the way up until very recently. And um, they, they see themselves as, as part of the same unit. And of course, uh, Turkish President Erdogan has dreams, as, as many have written about, of a pan-Turkic union or, or a, an Islamic uh, caliphate. And whichever, whichever way you take that, what it means is that he sees the uh, territorial integrity of Azerbaijan is very much tied in with the, the well-being of, of Turkey itself. So they work very closely together. In this recent conflict, uh, Erdogan did uh, pretty much everything one could do to support a state at a time of conflict. He certainly was on the airwaves making all kinds of pledges of, of loyalty and support, you know, bombastic uh, threats against Armenians. And, and then backed up all of that rhetoric with, with arms and, and, and very explicitly, very publicly, there was really no shame about it. They had worked Turkey and Azerbaijan over the summer uh, in joint military exercises. And it was pretty clear that Azerbaijan perpetuated the conflict as long as it did over, over a month, about a month and a half, because it had such strong support from one of the biggest and most powerful states in the region. So Turkey's role uh, was, was huge. And if you take Turkey out of the equation, this conflict would have been very different, at the very least, much, much shorter. Mm -hmm. And what are the Armenians losing? For instance, I know they've lost some monasteries and they're losing a lot of territory, as I mentioned at the top of the show. So well, what is it that Armenia is losing here? Well, they're... There's what they're losing, uh, you know, concretely, and then there's what they're losing more intangibly. Concretely, they're losing, maybe most importantly, the city of, of Shushi, or Shusha, as it's sometimes called. This is a very ancient city that is located in this region of Artsakh or Nagorno-Karabakh, and it is known to be something of a holy city. Uh, there are many churches and ancient Armenian uh, properties and, and heritage in this area. And the loss of, of Shushi is, is maybe the most difficult uh, pill for the Armenians to swallow. There's also a number of other territories um, uh, in this Republic of Artsakh that are being lost. There's been videos on social media of Armenians uh, burning their houses down uh, as they're forced to withdraw, as these territories will be given over to Azerbaijan. Uh, we see uh, videos of people gathering in front of a very old uh, Armenian Orthodox churches singing, holding hands, knowing that this could be the last time that they uh, see these uh, these kinds of things. So they are they're losing quite a bit um, of of physical property, if if you want to call it that. But there's also the the intangible loss of yet more indigenous Armenian land. As I said just a few minutes ago. Artsakh was a thing for Armenians, was, was a territory they controlled 
almost 200 years before Jesus was born. This is very, very old. The Armenians have been there for a very long time. And of course, the Turks, whether they're uh, Azeris or, or Turks from the Republic of Turkey, didn't arrive in the area until at the very least the 6th century AD, and, and mostly not until the 9th, 10th, and 11th. So these Armenians uh, have been gradually shrunken down into smaller and smaller, uh, a smaller and smaller piece of land. And this, you know, on, on a map for people living in a massive country like the United States, these, these lost territories may seem small and maybe even irrelevant, but for Armenians, it's just another scrape at the apple. And they can't help but think uh, about how long it'll be until, until everything's taken from them. So, you know, I hear some people talk about this as just being a, a border dispute, trying to downplay the significance uh, of it. But for Armenians, especially in light of the Turkish genocide that happened only a century ago, this, this was an existential conflict and the loss of these things is, is really a, a major, major blow to the nation. And Philo's project published an open letter to the Trump administration and Congress calling on them to help the Armenians. What would you want the U.S. government to do now? Well, in that letter, which was interestingly submitted contemporaneously with the ceasefire, and I'm, I'm talking about mere, mere minutes, uh, I wish I could say that the letter was responsible for that. But in the letter, we asked the U.S. administration and Congress to condemn Turkey and Azerbaijan for their aggression against Armenia and Artsakh, especially against uh, civilians in churches. Uh, and, and we said that that condemnation should include uh, arms embargoes, targeted sanctions, whatever tools are available uh, to hold these states accountable. We also called for the government, U.S. government to suspend military sales to both countries until the aggression ceases and until Azerbaijan withdraws from the territories that they took. Uh, thirdly, we asked the U.S. to send direct or indirect, if needed, humanitarian assistance to Armenians uh, in the zone of, of conflict. And then lastly, we called for the U.S. government to initiate diplomatic efforts to resolve uh, the status of Artsakh, which is disputed. We haven't talked about that, but to uh, initiate efforts that would uh, finally resolve the, the limbo that Artsakh and its people find itself in, in a way that safeguards the rights of the Armenians living there. Just a small parenthesis here. For those who don't know, this, this area, Republic of Artsakh, it is declared to be a country by the Armenians who live there. But in the eyes of the international community, this is a part of Azerbaijan. It's a breakaway region, a region that declared its autonomy and independence and remains unrecognized by uh, most of the countries of the world. From, Arme from Azerbaijan's perspective, this is part of Azerbaijan. But for the Armenians who've been living there since long before the Azeri Turks uh, ever showed up in the region, this uh, has to be, uh, you know, has to be uh, part of the, the Armenian people's self-determination. So that, that complicates this whole question, and I think it really um, made a, a U.S. response difficult, which is why I think that this last point, this diplomatic uh, efforts point, it may be the most important, certainly to avoid you know, another conflict in the future and the, the, you know, the conquest of even more of Artsakh's land. 
And uh, so Armenians seem, I would say, from my perspective, they seem to have a good network of soft power, especially through its diaspora. And I saw Armenian activism, not just from people I know through Providence and the Philos Project, but other sources. Even Conan O'Brien has an Armenian on his staff who's pretty vocal, and I follow Conan O'Brien. And so it's interesting seeing her on Instagram posting about this from a very you know, different perspective than the Christian foreign policy community. And so why wasn't the world able or willing to do more to help Armenia? Well, that's, that's really the big question. I think part of the problem is that the fighting took place in this disputed region. And it's, you know, it's, it's very difficult to come down on the side of a government that you don't recognize. I think another problem was the moment. Uh, I think Azerbaijan and Turkey were very aware that 2020 is a little crazy. And more importantly, that the American political moment is just just completely uh, insane. And uh, that's why I don't think there was any mis any mistake in the fact that these hostilities broke out when they did just a short time before the U.S. election, when everybody knew that Americans were paying attention to nothing else. You know, the, lastly, and this is maybe the most important reason, is that America, although some people in the in the policy community are waking up, has typically been extremely pro-Turkey, and I mean to a fault. And uh, that's largely because Turkey has been a strong ally through the Cold War. It was, you know, geopolitically very important for our confrontation with the Soviet Union, and even until today remains an important way for us as the U.S. to balance the power of Russia. And what that's really meant is that we've more often than not given the Turks a free pass. I mean, you can just look in the last year or two years, all that President Erdogan has been doing with not even a slap on the wrist from the United States. He's in Syria, largely with the, uh, with the agreement of the U.S., He's in Libya. He's he's threatening Greeks and Cypriots uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean. He's obviously active in uh, Artsakh. He's supporting Hamas. He's, you know, when the when the French teacher just a few weeks ago showed that cartoon to his class, he was one of the people saying how awful that was, and I think played some kind of ancillary role in in fanning the flames of of uh, Muslim hatred. Uh, that resulted in some of the deaths that we've seen. So he is a rogue actor, and he is very aware that the U.S. needs him, and he is pushing the envelope just about as far as he can. So I think that when these, uh, you know, when this moment happened, there were people in the State Department who, and in the White House, who were thinking this this is not good. We should do something, but because there is this bias toward Turkey, this fear of of rocking the boat this fear of driving erdogan even further from the west i think a lot of people uh, turned a blind eye and that's not just me speaking uh, anecdotally this is this is something i've i've heard explicitly from from people in house the good news is that uh, policymakers uh, more than before seem to be uh, getting a handle on just how bad turkey is and realizing that if we don't draw a line in the sand soon we're going to have to do it anyway when the situation is even less in our favor. But for the time being, this, I think, remains one of the major reasons why 
the U.S. and even the West more broadly kind of looked the other way while, you know, Artsakh was was conquered by, by the Azeris. So uh, obviously the Republic of Artsakh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, has lost a lot of territory, but this also has a lot of ramifications for the Republic of Armenia. So what do you think happens to the Armenian prime minister, if I pronounce his name correctly, Nikol uh, Pashinyan? Pashinyan, mm-hmm. Pashinyan. So uh, what do you think will happen to him? Actually, did you post a picture? Like, do you know him or have you met him? Uh, the president, I posted a picture of Armin Sarkisian. I have not met Pashinyan, but uh, Pashinyan's in a lot of trouble right now. If you've seen any of the, the videos that came out of Yerevan just a few days ago, I mean, the Armenian people are absolutely traumatized, outraged. You know, there's, there's some fear that Pashinyan himself may be in, in real personal danger. I mean, you can imagine just sort of putting your, yourself in the head of these Armenians, people who see themselves as a beleaguered people, surrounded on all sides, landlocked, losing ground steadily, steadily for centuries, now to see their own leader, someone that was in some sense a uh, the golden boy, uh, someone who, who came on the scene just a few years ago to bring Armenia to you know to a new place into the into the 21st century to see this man giving up huge chunks of land to the Azeris. This is it's it's treason in the eyes of of many people. And Pashinyan is really on the ropes trying to explain why he did it, to explain that. It was either, you know, stop there and, and cut losses or lose everything. But many Armenians uh, are not buying it. So it's, it's unclear to me whether he'll stay. Many are demanding his resignation, if not worse. I think there will probably be some kind of shakeup. It's hard to see how he'll be able to maintain his legitimacy after something like this. But that even, even his resignation won't solve the, the domestic crisis that the Republic of Armenia now finds itself in. It's a, it's a moment of soul searching, of questioning, of second guessing. It's a moment uh, of doubting a, an assumption that has been growing for a few years in Armenia, which is that Armenia should try its best to get closer to the U.S. and, and closer to the West. And the, of course, the West just complete um, silence on this issue I think makes many Armenians feel that really they have no friends apart from maybe Russia and to some extent Iran. But but even there, I think Armenians know that neither of those countries really have have their best interests at heart anyway. So it, it's a really tough time for Armenians right now in the in the Republic of Armenia. And of course, that's not even talking about the people who lost family members in the fighting. Right. And speaking about Russia, so obviously Russia is a major player in the area. They, they used to control the area during the Soviet Union days. And Russia was a broker in the, of the final peace deal and that they're going to send peacekeepers into the area. And I think I'm not sure if Turkey's sending in peacekeepers. I've saw some conflicting reports on that. I'm not sure this morning of the state of that. So geopolitically and regionally, I would say it seems that Russia is a major loser in this conflict and that Turkey is a major winner. This is because Azerbaijan and Turkey were unsatisfied with the status quo of Armenians controlling Artsakh, and they used their military power to change the facts on the ground to suit their agenda. Meanwhile, Russia, I believe, was satisfied with the status quo. They have pipelines going um, nearby, and so having conflict near these pipelines was 
probably not what they wanted. And, uh, but Turkey was able to push their weight around. And they, the Russians went from being an uncontested power broker to having to deal more with Turkey. Um, in this, I see kind of a continuing trend of Russia losing power in its near abroad, whether to China and former Soviet states in Central Asia or European Union-friendly populations in Ukraine and other Eastern European countries. So, but different analysts have different takes on this particular viewpoint of who is the winner and loser broadly beyond the Armenians and uh, so forth. So other than the Armenians, who do you think are the major winners and losers? And in, in particular, what does this mean for Iran? Well, that's a great question. And, and one of the big arguments on the, on the other side of this throughout the, the course of the latest conflict was that the U.S. should not help Armenia because Armenia is, you know, quote, in, quote unquote, in bed with Russia and Iran and helping them only uh, you know, strengthens our enemies, whereas Turkey and Azerbaijan are, you know, in this telling, our allies. I think you're right that Turkey is the big winner here. I mean, Erdogan went went for it, and no one did anything for over a month, and his people, his allies, the Azeris, uh, gained ground. The Armenians lost ground, and he emerges, uh, I think, more powerful than he was at the outset. Now, president-elect, I'm not sure what his technical status is right now, Joe Biden, uh, I won't get into that, that mess, but he, he actually, um, interestingly, was fairly vocal during the conflict uh, on the side of the Armenians, and uh, Turkey's aware of that. Turkey, of course, is trying to figure out, like everyone else, what comes next? What does American foreign policy look in the Caucasus and the Near East under a Biden administration? It seems like it may be more anti-Turkey than uh, the Trump uh, administration's policy was. It's, it's unclear. But I think uh, one of the reasons why the, uh, the fighting stopped when it did was that everybody was sort of taking a breath to, to figure out what what comes next uh, from the U.S. direction? So one thing I know for certain is that the U.S. Uh, doesn't gain much here, apart from maybe, as you say, the energy lanes being being uh, intact at the end of it, and Azerbaijan as a, as a major energy supplier, you know, remaining remaining solid. I do think there are some uh, benefits for Russia. I agree that it's not a clear win for Vladimir Putin, but you can imagine that uh, Putin's ability to broker the conflict uh, to a ceasefire is in and of itself evidence of some residual power that he maintains in his near abroad. Now, it's certainly not as strong as it was under the Soviets or maybe even as strong as it was uh, 10 or 20 years ago. But I do think that it's, it's worth noting that Putin was the only one who was able to make it stop, the U.S. either could not or would not, and uh, it was it was he who who stepped in and uh, brought the parties together. So the fact that Russia will have peacekeepers on the ground, I think, you know, it gives Putin a reason to uh, you know demonstrate his power in in, in a place beyond his his borders. Uh, I, I agree with you. The the it's unclear where Turkey or Turkish soldiers will fit in that regime, but they they will be present either in the in arts in these territories of Artsakh itself or 
stationed uh, just over the border in Azerbaijan. So it's it's uh, it's interesting to see, and and even the the fact that um, Putin and Erdogan have been in touch more recently, although kind of historic enemies, Turkey and Russia. It could be that under a Biden administration, uh, the two actually find more common cause uh, than they have in a long time. Now, as far as Iran, Iran is an ally of Armenia. The border with Iran is one of the few that Armenia sees as as stable and safe. They have trade relationships, all kinds of uh, things like that. But it's not exactly clear, especially under a pretty brutal sanctions regime that Iran really is is better off one way or the other. They were mostly quiet during this time. And uh, I think that's just a testament to the to the pressure they're under from from the U.S. Uh, under the Trump administration. And I'm going to be posting some maps online with the uh, podcast page so that we can kind of see for the readers who aren't or listeners who aren't that familiar with all the geographic areas of how these countries are connected. Mm-hmm. And I actually didn't realize how Azerbaijan, Iran, and Turkey, how their borders are so close together in that little tight corner. Mm-hmm. But anyways, and I'll also in the map show like the territory that the uh, Artsakh lost. And uh, so to kind of move you know, to Turkey and what's going to happen next, we see some talk now about Erdogan wanting to call for a two-state solution in Cyprus. And so do you think they are going to focus in on that? And what do you think the Biden administration would do or should do? Well, I think the timing is interesting, just to, to sort of point to what I said before, that the Turkey, that Erdogan feels like he needs to make some kind of concession. I don't know that I, that's the right word, but, you know, demonstrate his, his peace bona fides. Um, I think that the situation in Cyprus is and has been since 1974 untenable. The fact that Turkey, a NATO ally, is occupying a EU member state is truly insane. The fact that no one talks about that or very few people, uh, the fact that Turks have built settlements to use the the analog from the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is pretty notable. But the fact that uh, very few people really talk about it or get all that upset about it is to me even more notable. Just goes to show you how people pick and choose the, the issues that are important to them. I do think a situation or the the uh, a resolution in Cyprus is needed. I think Biden should pursue it, but I don't think that Biden should cave. And and I would say across the board, the U.S. whatever happens in Cyprus needs to reevaluate and um, and really strengthen its position vis-a-vis Turkey. And there are lots of different ways to do that short of any kind of military engagement, lots of tools in the toolbox. But this, this uh, you know, extremely pro-Turkish policy that we've had in place for decades has, has really run its course. It's, it's, to say it's living on borrowed time is, is an understatement, right? This Turkey that we're looking at today is not the Turkey of, of 1950, 1990, or even you know, 2000. I mean, this, for the last 10 years, the situation is beginning worse and worse. And I think that the Biden administration needs to, as I said, draw a line in the sand. And there's there's rhetorical ways that that can be done, recognizing the Armenian genocide at the executive level. There are economic ways. There are 
you know, just tougher approaches to negotiation in Cyprus and other places that could actually, um, you know, contain this, uh, this Turkey problem in a way that it hasn't been, that hasn't been done really over the last four years. So I would say that for Biden, Turkey should be very close to the top of his list of priorities. If, you know, the sooner we do something, the better. I think personally that we're going to be dealing with Erdogan um, for the next 10 years, unless something changes. And it's important that the U.S. position itself to not cut Turkey off. That's not what I'm talking about, but to have a much narrower policy toward Turkey that allows us to work with uh, its people, its army, its intelligence services, while also, you know, standing up for these kinds of aggressions, especially, especially when they're committed against regional minorities like Christians. You know, for all of the, um, you know, the, the anger that's been directed against the Arab world for the last 20 years, ever since 9-11, and it's mistreatment of Christians and other minorities, and certainly there has been a lot of that, it pales in comparison historically to what uh, the Turks have done to Christians. No, no group, no, no state has persecuted, discriminated against, or, or murdered more Christians, even by, even close to, to what Turkey has done, certainly in the last hundred years, but, but even in the last few centuries. So I think that the Biden administration, for that reason, a moral reason, but also for lots of geopolitical reasons, needs to uh, needs to do something. And I think that a reevaluation of the Turkey policy is is the first place to start. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, this week. Oh, by the way, we are recording this on November 16. In case listeners are wondering, and if facts on the ground change at all, but this week you wrote a or writing a op-ed about what other recommendations you would give to the Biden administration. So to kind of close this out, like more broadly in the Middle East, like what is your recommendation? Well, I think there's one big one. uh, And I think it has to do with continuing the Trump administration's policy of encouraging, supporting, strengthening the emerging alliance between Israel and Arab states throughout the region. We saw just in the last few months, this slew of somewhat surprising peace deals between Israel and the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Sudan. And all reports I've read point to the fact that there could be as many as half a dozen others in the waiting. And I think that although Biden was elected in many ways to uh, roll back everything that Trump did, both uh, domestically and in the foreign policy arena, I think it would very much behoove him to carry that particular policy forward. This is just not something we see every day, right? These states, these Arab states, especially Sudan, which was really uh, out of left field for a lot of people, a big giant Arab state that has sponsored terrorism uh, for for decades. Um, this This is a really, really big deal. And for those of us who really work hard for for peace in the Near East, this is a this is a windfall, and we would be crazy not to keep that going. Partisanship should not get in the way of that. And I think the Biden administration actually could go even further than Trump, not just um, you know welcoming those Arab states that have still yet to make uh, a peace uh, deal with Israel, but also possibly maybe even bringing uh, the Palestinians uh, back to the table, uh, you know, welcoming them to this peace party too. Of course. The Palestinian uh, 
leaders boycotted Trump and Jared Kushner and, and the Trump peace plan that uh, was offered um, just uh, last year. But, you know, a new president brings new opportunities. And I think that Biden could use that fresh mandate uh, as leverage to work toward something that seems right now almost impossible, but with the right approach could actually come to be. And I'm talking about a post-normalization Palestine, right? It's it's not something that I would put at the very top of the agenda. The Palestinians have been offered a number of deals over the years and have said no. So I I don't know that uh, Biden should exert himself too much. But I think there is a desire on the part of Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian Authority, the Palestine Liberation Organization, to come in out of the cold. You can imagine that for the last couple of years, they've, although very much uh, opposed to Trump and Kushner and everything that they did, uh, want some want some progress, right? They want to be um, welcomed back into the community of nations, and in particular, the community of Arab nations. They they feel, for good reason, pretty pretty ostracized right now as these Arab states are making deals with Israel, and I think that under the right conditions, and maybe specifically under the right leadership, something like that could be possible. So Biden actually comes in with a lot of leverage, uh, both for continuing this this rash of peace deals, but also trying to woo the Palestinians to uh, to do the same. We'll see if it's we'll see if it's actually possible, but I think it's absolutely worth a shot. Well, Robert, thank you so much for joining us today, you know, remotely on the Foreign Policy Profcast and giving all of your insights and analysis on, you know, this conflict and everything that's going to happen. Well, thank you, Mark. I always uh, enjoy being on and keep up the good work. Thank you.